We're going to start today with a conversation with Nate Redmond, Managing Partner of Alpha Edison in Southern California. Nate, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Nate, tell our audience about Alpha Edison and yourself. Just let's, uh, you know, introduce you to the audience. And, of course, for me also, some catching up because the last time we spoke, you were doing something else and you were in the middle of putting this new thing together. So, let's catch up. Uh, thank you so much. So, Alpha Edison is a firm, new firm. Um, we're about two years old. And it, the... Uh, the focus and how we invest is really a function of the type of business model innovation that we look at. So unlike most investors, most venture capital investors who tend to look for and focus on either sector uh, expertise, so for example, digital media or fintech or they look at um, kind of technology waves, for example, mobile. Um, our belief is that these have ceased to become real sources of differentiated insight. And instead, we look through much more horizontal lenses that cut across traditional sectors um, and end up really driving and shaping business model innovation. And the power of that business model innovation is that it allows you to unlock new markets. And unlocking those markets uh, is really the power of long-term sustainable growth. So that's um, an abstraction. Can we double-click down and work on an example that illustrates the philosophy that you just outlined? I think that would be helpful. So, you know, when we started the firm, we really set out to answer a very specific, simple question uh, with a complex answer, which is, why is it that most investors miss most of their best opportunities? And so an investor is known and, and uh, has been very successful largely on the basis for a small number of investments that they've made and companies that they've been part of building. And yet, if you look back through their career, um, despite having invested in two or three companies that went on to be very successful, they actually saw another 10 or, or 12 or 15 or 20 that were equally, if not um, more successful. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's partly a byproduct of the fact that you see many, many companies as an investor. But you turn it around and look at a company like Airbnb, and why is it that so many investors saw and yet didn't have conviction in order to move forward and make an investment? Of course, as you move forward and things become obvious, uh, it's reflected in the price. Um, even for those who came in and billion-dollar-plus valuation, that was a, a smart move. But we really focus on the earlier stages. And when you look at a company like Airbnb, it's, you know, it's very easy uh, when you're kind of sitting 10 years later to look at uh, how obvious things seem today. But when you mm -hmm. roll back to when, um, when this team really started the company, you know, it was clear that they were looking at a market of, of uh, hospitality that was quite significant. 
if you look at the behaviors that they were targeting, these behaviors mm -hmm. were really required an individual to come into a home with a, someone who they didn't know and uh, to stay probably on an airbed. And as such, it was a uh, behavior that really appealed to or fit for a very narrow slice of the population. Consequently, um, investors, including myself, sat and looked at the company and didn't quite understand the size and scope of the opportunity. And it wasn't uh -huh. because the, you know, being an investor in, or an expert in hospitality didn't necessarily help you. In fact, it probably created blind spots. So the, the area and the focus for us is really understanding how, in this case, the business model around in a marketplace, more specifically around how you can engage a, a supply base organize it to really unlock a large portion of latent demand. And in order to unlock that latent demand, it really requires understanding the types of behaviors that people would like to engage in, would like to perform, and yet aren't because they're otherwise constrained. In the case of Airbnb, one of the most important elements that unlocked that behavior was a sense of trust. And so, mm -hmm. for example, trust for us has become one of these foundational layers and lenses that we look through to really understand how is it that you can establish and build trust once you do within the context of the market that you're going after, let's say financial services or health, um, what types of behaviors, new behaviors emerge and what does that mm -hmm. allow you to do in terms of reshaping the business model within that industry? So, so that means that you are looking for markets to take the Airbnb example where trust was obvious in a very small segment. The larger, you know, the broadening of that trust equation took time and, and you are committing to extrapolating and, and uh, you know, thinking through that trust equation on a longer term basis. Yeah, that's exactly right. And when we look at the, you know, the lack of trust that existed within the context of any one of us individually going into someone's home who we did not know, and the, the framework through which we can begin to um, establish and build that trust through rating systems, through the way in which uh, Joe and the team really developed and built product allows us to begin to understand and estimate the, the scope of the market opportunity that exists if you're able to establish and build that trust. And, um, and again, for us, this is less about actually going in and taking share from incumbents. That's, well, that's always part of it. What actually drives the long-term sustainable growth is much more unlocking uh, this be these New behaviors. Value. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, for example, again, using ride sharing as um, as a framework, you know, before Uber and Lyft, et cetera, began, again, let's roll back 10 years, the total spend in the Bay Area on taxi and limousines was 140 million dollars. 
Last year, already more than a billion dollars was spent in the Bay Area across ride sharing. And so this is not a growth curve that is reflective of just going in and taking share. It turns out that a lot of people wanted to move from point A to point B without driving. And consequently, they either previously drove themselves with a set of frustrations or they just didn't go at all. And mm -hmm. by removing friction, by creating trust within the system, you actually unlocked a set of behaviors that, that um, colored and, and described a market that was much bigger than people realized. And that, just to tie the loop on it, that, that failure to understand the size of the market opportunity oftentimes mm -hmm. causes investors not to have conviction as to sure. why Airbnb could be large and therefore miss most of their best opportunities. Yeah. So that tells me that you are focusing mostly on B2C. Is that a correct observation? So consumer businesses clearly have an application of this, but we've also found that there are many uh, business-oriented companies that are servicing businesses that also, the, you know, their customers fundamentally uh, are servicing consumers and or the changing behaviors of the underlying consumers actually shape and reshape the, the markets that they're targeting. Mm -hmm. um, for example, I'm, I have invested um, previously, I was with a firm called Rustic Canyon, um, in that time, I invested in a company called Gaikai. Gaikai had looked at the changing dynamics of, of streaming, enabling very different modes of gameplay. Of course, that's fairly obvious today. Um, at that time, it was less obvious. That shift in the enabling technology, but fundamentally shaped by the desire by individuals to play um, interactive entertainment, fundamentally games, without requiring a, you know, that to be loaded onto your computer or to your Xbox, et cetera, but really to be played online was what drove it, even though a company like Gaikai really sold through large partners like um, Sony and LG. Mm -hmm. Nate, uh, what about uh, stage? What, um, what are you looking to see? Are you investing in concepts? Are you investing in a little bit of something, a little bit of traction? What, uh, what is comfortable? So, you know, stage has been a, a segmentation that many investors use that is, I think, reflective of a type of, of process, both in terms of sourcing and an understanding of a business. Um, we are early stage investors. By that we mean we tend to be investors in the first, or we are the first institutional investors in a company. Um, in, in many cases, this company will have raised angel and or seed money. Um, in some cases, that will have been called a seed round. In some cases, it will have been called an aid round. But most importantly for us is really understanding the type of risk that that describes where this company is and the type of risk that we really want to own at this stage. Um, so we aren't religious about it being called a Series A. Um, we are really focused on partnering deeply with an entrepreneur in a way that um, we seek to become that entrepreneur's first call 
Um, so it's fine. But uh, my, so question well. is, my question is more about what do you want to see in terms of validation to be okay with investing in a company? Yeah, so it's, it's really not about, you know, any one specific set of metrics. If you're a company that is going in and targeting consumers in financial services, there are, we have a very specific thesis. Um, when we talk about trust, trust is evident by things such as very high NPS, um, very low churn. And those are important. Obviously, NPS affords you the opportunity to build mm -hmm. a, a base of customers without spending lots of money on marketing. Um, very low churn creates this long-term durable relationship. So that, having that context, um, we will focus more on those metrics and looking at the um, long-term establishment and, and creation of value as opposed to what's the trailing month-over-month -month growth, which, frankly, anyone fresh out of school can look at and, um, you know, make an early assessment. And that differs, Srana, from, you know, the way in which we would think about a, you know, a business in a, you know, in a very different space. So, you know, clearly it is more important to understand how the pace of learning for an entrepreneur, for a company, the, um, the mode of development and how that maps to the long-term vision. You know, we spend a lot of time and effort and work around in our focus on business model innovation on how we understand the full potential of the business and the mm -hmm. path by which we can unlock that full potential. Okay. What about fund size and check size? How big is Alpha Edison and what size checks are you comfortable writing? So we really in, will invest, our kind of core investments tend to be somewhere between two and $10 million. Um, those aren't hard ranges, only to kind of provide a bracket and a, a set of areas of focus. Sometimes we come in a little earlier um, with a very clear thesis on um, how we begin to unlock that upside. If we do come in earlier, it's with the hope and intent that we can um, lead the subsequent round and, and do so in a way that um, is, is consistent with the execution pace and, um, and our thesis, are, again, around how you will unlock that upside. Um, and so, you know, we are um, – that maps back to the notion of being early-stage investors. How big is the fund? Uh, 175. 175 million. And geography. You are based in Southern California. Is the investment preference also Southern California, or do you have a broader preference? We are based in Southern California. That really does afford us a view and a set of, of uh, opportunities to dig in around Los Angeles. That said, we are not a regional fund. Um, we actually don't believe that regional strategies are, are sustainable over the long term uh, as a point of differentiation. And instead, we have uh, really looked through these lenses at the very best companies um, uh, reflective of our theses. So we have investments in Los Angeles. We also have in San Francisco, in New York, um, and Seattle to date. Okay.
Talk about some of the highlights of your portfolio. What have you invested in that you're excited about right now? Um, well, you know, we're a new firm, so we are uh, we're excited and have fortune have been fortunate to watch the real development of and the early development of our portfolio. Um, you know, there's there's a company called House Canary in San Francisco, which I'll mention in that they, you know, we have a belief and a thesis that that uh, residential real estate, which as an asset class is larger than uh, equities in the United States, is mm -hmm. one that um, despite its size and um, fragmentation, or perhaps because of it, has a, a um, level of opacity that is fundamentally different than what you would see in the equity or credit markets where transparency has come. And as transparency has come to those markets, transparency around pricing of an underlying security, of how to trade those securities, of how to actually transact, and the friction has come down, you've seen a very significant increase in, in velocity of transactions. So mm -hmm. when you look at residential real estate, the behaviors that people have exhibited around how frequently they move and um, the strategies that they take to, to manage that uh, home has been, you know, has really not changed over the last 25 years. And at its core is the fact that very few people really understand what their home is worth. So if you start by building a, a clear sense of value of that home, you can begin to not just chip at the edges of, of uh, you know, improving the existing process, but actually begin to rewire the entire transaction process. And that's what House Canary set out to do. Um, and, you know, we are incredibly excited about the long-term prospects for the company. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you look back, are you been doing this fund now for two years with this investment thesis? Um, what have you seen in the deal flow that could be uh, called trend lines? What are, the, um, you, what are the dynamics of your deal flow? And what does that say about the industry? So again, we came in with a, a thesis based off of the last 15 years that uh, most investors have sought to differentiate themselves on the basis of access. And while access remains very important, it's no longer sufficient to really drive uh, differentiated insight and performance. So in other words, the fact that you could see Airbnb was important, but it turns out lots of people saw Airbnb. So actually just having access wasn't the core differentiator. It was really having a, a, a strong enough point of view around where this company could go and how it could emerge that actually shaped the, the long-term performance and was reflective in this case of, of Sequoia having the conviction to move early. When, um, when we looked at our deal flow, you know, one of the dynamics that's changed across the venture capital industry, and it's important just to understand for entrepreneurs, is that, you know, it's similar to the way in which our email inboxes have changed over the last decade, where you've had almost an order of magnitude increase in terms of the number of things that are hitting your inbox. Uh, similarly, you have just an explosion in terms of 
the number of, of companies. For most people and most firms, that causes a, those, those sort of standard traditional filters to just become overwhelmed. The byproduct of that, of course, is that most people fall back on these heuristics on, gosh, I'd love to talk to you. Can you just make sure you get a recommendation for someone I know? Or if you get introduced by a CEO within our portfolio, then I'll focus and take a look. Um, you know, that's an easy point to rely on. We believe that that causes you not only to miss really important um, developing opportunities, but frankly causes the investment uh, process to tend to uh, focus back in on, you know, people who are introduced and to be like you. Most VCs are white males, and therefore most entrepreneurs who get in introduced by their friends are white males. And um, so we're really focusing, Shimona, on different ways of opening up the top end of our funnel and having a very efficient and effective manner by which we can work through a, uh, a process to really engage a much broader array of entrepreneurs. So do you have a uh, layer of um, principals or associates who are <laughs> fielding a much larger inflow of deals? We do have a, a really incredibly talented team that we've begun building. Um, but we've also, a lot of this is a focus on, on systems because, you know, people reach their scale limits very quickly. And, um, and you know, the judgment that we're uh, developing is one that, that we're really intending to accentuate and to accelerate through the systems that we have. Yeah. It's actually, uh, unfortunately, the industry is very, very um, hard to break into for people who are, you know, completely coming cold into it from random outskirts and find their way in. So we, we definitely try to bridge that problem for our entrepreneurs. And, and our entrepreneurs are not just white male at all. It's very, very diverse. Uh, community. So, yeah. and, I, and, and I've always had, a, just to be clear, I've always had a lot of respect for, um, for that and for the, the community that's, that you've um, collectively built here. So, uh, it's really wonderful to be a part of it. Thank you. So, Nate, um, comment on unicorn mania for me. Um, we just kind of went a little bit crazy with this concept of unicorns and then everybody needed to be a unicorn and as well. It's just a very unfortunate twist that the industry has taken. How do you parse unicorn mania? Well, look, you know, unicorn status, if you will, became a marker of success that obviously is is artificial in many ways in that and there's and flawed and it, you know it's it's certainly evident of developing one measure of value which is reflective of a an investor or a group of investors willingness to buy shares at a price clearly it doesn't necessarily translate to long-term 
uh, economic value. Um, it can, um, but it's, the correlation is lower than you would otherwise think and expect. Or said differently, the failure rate of unicorns is much higher than people realize. And um, one of the things that got embedded within a lot of unicorn media was in a company's attempt to reach for this milestone, they were willing to trade off, um, you know, the type of investor, the way in which that investor engaged, the structure of the deal that they made with that investor, meaning both, you know, heavy preferences that are put on top and or mm -hmm. the type of, of negative controls that this uh, investor or group of investors has, um, you know, the ratchet that it may occur at a time of a public offering, et cetera. Like the list goes on very, and, and so, you know, a lot of those dynamics are unhealthy. Clearly it's unhealthy for people to become um, so heavily focused on, you know, this, this sort of individual time marker value, whereas this long-term economic value is really what, what matters. Um, you know, that said, the lists continue and people, and, you know, the nomenclature continues within the press. And I don't think it's going away anytime soon. No, it's not so it going exists, away at all. But you are looking for these outsized returns, though, right? You're not looking for the niche opportunities. Well, look, I, I think the dynamics of of invest of growth investing. By the way, it's not just venture capital. It's not just seed investing. It's not just early stage or later stage. It's all growth investing, including public markets. Is that the power law? that is significant and applies across the returns, meaning a few things make up nearly all of the returns for a fund, for a firm, for, um, you know, again, the same thing for public growth funds. And um, given that, you will always, as an investor, be interested in understanding what company really could be that outside driver. In fact, every venture firm will say, you know, we really only focus on companies that can emerge that way. And that's sort of a byproduct of the notion of a firm, a fund. Now, if you had a structure whereby you were really looking at investments on an individual by individual basis, that may begin to change. I think the importance of the work that we are doing uh, in really rethinking markets is that the, the power of a niche, for example, to go back to what we talked about on Airbnb, is that, you know, here they were going after and targeting a very specific behaviorally, not strategically, behaviorally targeting a very niche segment that turned out to be a very large segment. And yeah. what they needed to do was through, through different systems, establishing and unlocking that trust so you could unlock this behavior. And that's what, uh, to me becomes the bridge between someone who believes are really going after a niche, we are really looking to understand how that niche actually is, is representative of a much larger segment of the population that not yet has um, exhibited that type of behavior. So, you know, I'm a huge fan of niches. And part of it is also there are the two ways to look at niches, right? There are right now in the industry, there are some six, seven hundred micro VCs, you know, small funds, $10 million funds, $15 million funds, $50 million funds who are 
in a position to invest in niches and actually make 3x, 4x on niches because there is a lot of acquisition opportunity. There are tons of, you know, especially in SaaS, there's a ton of companies that could acquire to grow and, and stuff like that. So there's there are exit opportunities within those niches and so forth. So and there's a fund size abundance of fund size uh, fit in that segment. So that's one way to play a niche. And the other way to play a niche is the way you're playing it or proposing to play it, which is to start with a niche and then be able to systematically broaden the niche into a more mainstream, much larger market opportunity. So I think either way you look at it, niche is a very important piece of how to build a company, a very important strategic move in how to build a company. Yeah, and to be clear, look, again, we also believe niches are really important and that you can go in, have a very specific understanding and target and, and over-serve that customer group, by which we mean really in creating delight that causes those customers to really become, um, you know, your ambassadors as you go out. And there's a, a weighting that most investors and, um, and sort of the broader ecosystem of entrepreneurs put against some understanding of TAN, the total addressable market, which, uh, you know, when an entrepreneur comes in and says, here's a trillion dollar market, my first reaction is you don't understand your market. That's because right. that, that right. notion of describing a TAN that, you know, you've missed the segmentation. So come in and have a very deep understanding of a very specific target. And then for us, we're going to look to understand how that target provides, you overserve that target market. You're now in a position to go do what? And that these nested if-thens create the framework through which you really unlock the full potential of a company. Very good. Nate, thank you for uh, being with us today and sharing your insights and uh, look forward to working with you on something uh, soon. I look forward to it as well. Thank you so much.